Welcome to the We Are SC podcast, Monday morning cornerback. This is Eric McKinney, joined by Daryl Rodeau. Uh, Daryl, we've had a, a couple days now to kind of go back maybe through the, the USC overtime loss to BYU. Uh, any new things that you've kind of taken from that, uh, again, with this kind of time to, to review, you know, maybe look at, look at the game again or, you know, take another look at stats or anything that's come out of this game? You know, Eric, it truly does feel like Reflection Monday as USC is forced to turn the page. Um, but I couldn't, I can't help but to position myself or think of myself um, as a former player and put myself in the shoes of these existing players. Uh, Pete Carroll used to tell us, in particular me, because I sometimes I used to get in my own head as a corner, he used to say, it's okay to make a mistake, but it's not okay to hold on to the emotions of making a mistake. And I get the sense that a loss like that to BYU has a lingering effect, especially if, as a player, you call yourself to question, were we as prepared as we could be? Am I as prepared as we could be? Because I, you're going up against a team in, in Pro Bowls that you should have beaten, but now you have to turn the page and go up against a team that you're not sure you can beat in Utah. But before you can even focus on Utah, you really have to reflect back on where did things go right and where did things go wrong and what could I have done differently? And I keep going back to the false sense of security from the first drive. Again, BYU stayed in their base vanilla defense and USC did exactly what USC should have done. Kind of marched down the field. Uh, Keaton Slovis looked very sharp. But what happens when you have to adjust to changes. The next few series truly showed the way that BYU defensively was going to attack USC strengths. And their whole goal was to take away, minimize the windows by flooding the zone, um, zone, the zone areas with robbers underneath to high safeties, forcing Keaton Slovis to have to go through his full progressions. Whereas against Stanford, perhaps he didn't have to do that because the talent appeared to be superior in terms of getting to their spots from the receivers. So when I think about what was going on and how Keaton Slovis found himself in a situation where he locked in on his primary target, I have to be also pleased as to how he got himself out of those situations. Granted, he threw the two interceptions. And in most cases, as a freshman, you find yourselves kind of falling deeper and deeper into a doldrum and, and, you know, on the rope. But I didn't see that with him. His body language didn't change. In fact, I thought he, he, he was sparked by the challenge of getting out of it. And what I love and what I saw from him was his ability to move and manipulate where the windows are going to be. That is something that they can build off of. Simply adjusting his position to kind of create new pockets was something that I wasn't sure that he would learn as a true freshman, but lo and behold, he possesses it. If he could build off of that and give this USC team a fighting chance without him feeling as though he has to play hero ball and make every uh, critical play. There's plenty of talent around him, Eric, where I think he can learn from that. So in, in retrospect, looking back at the game, I thought that this was a situation where I'm not certain that 
BYU truly beat USC as much as they self-imploded by not executing either the game plan or, quite frankly, being in the wrong game plan against a team that was a counterpuncher. You know, for, for me, sort of the, the most frustrating thing is that BYU defensively just, just kind of said, you know, like you said, after that first drive, they sort of said, hey, this is what we're going to do. Well, you know, we're going we're gonna to put three guys on the line of scrimmage. We're going to drop everybody else back, and we're going to make you uncomfortable because we're not going to let you do what you want to do. The frustrating things about that for me, the fact that it ends up working because BYU, you know, they, they get the win, the only thing that's important. USC couldn't do one of two things. They couldn't find a way to say, no, we're still better than you and we can still do what we want to do. But B, they couldn't just say, all right, we're going to run the ball on the ground and, and truly commit to it and have success there. You can talk about, you know, the sheer number of runs uh, that you had, but for 171 yards, this was a, a defense that was giving up 252 yards a yep. game on the ground in their first two games. So I don't think you can look, even for a pass-first USC team, I don't think you can look at what you did on the ground and say, man, we had some success there. I think on the ground, based on, again, what BYU was telling you, if you do this well, you're going to beat us, USC couldn't couldn't do couldn't that. Do and yeah. I don't know if it's a sense of, uh, you know, if USC just – really doesn't want to run the ball as much as maybe they they could or should and I get it there is a lot more run to this air raid than a lot of other air raids and I do think that when they had success on the ground it, it looked really good and I think they're capable of running the ball but I don't know and I'm curious about your sense I I don't know if there is really a hundred percent buy-in we're going to run at this defense and we're going to love doing it and we're going to be excited about running. It felt like we'll run a little bit and then we can get back to throwing after they adjust. And that just, it it never happened. Eric, there is nothing sexy. There's nothing uh, appealing about running the ball. When Graham Harold is a former quarterback, Clay Helton is a former quarterback. And as much as Clay Helton wants to say that, you know, he was, um, he learned from his father who emphasized uh, running the ball, running attack as a former lineman, there is nothing glamorous about doing the dirty work, getting your nails dirty, and committing to the running game effectively. This is an offense that changed its, its full identity and leads one to believe if there is truly an identity or is this offense just reactionary? It wants to throw the ball. It makes no gripe about that. And when the numbers dictate that, hey, this is the game, like you just indicated, that should be a 280 to 350-yard ground and pound game, the reluctance of this offense wanting to stay – um, aggressive and throw the ball really threw them out of sequence. It, it threw this, this, this team out of the pace and out of the rhythm it needed to be in order to dominate a game that was clearly there with three defenders in the box. They allowed the nose tackle of BYU at times to manhandle the interior line from the center over to the guards. He had his way. 
what what this game truly I thought did was it exposed that if you are a team that truly understands your identity and your weaknesses, USC can be baited into becoming a one-dimensional team. And that is that is that is really an indictment on the the coach's ability, the coaching staff's ability to get the most out of its team in its preparation. And what I mean by that is what good is having the four or five star talent at the running back position if you're not going to put them in a position to be as successful as they can be? Yeah, you wanted to throw the ball. The pockets were not there. So the next best thing to do is to change up your personnel and getting yourself into obvious running situations so that now you can force the defense to have to adjust. But under no circumstance during the course of this game were there ever moments where BYU felt so uncomfortable that they had to abandon their defensive game plan. Instead, Eric, it felt opposite. It felt USC got so frustrated that they couldn't execute their short passing game that it lost its, its identity and it became reactionary to what the defense was doing. Therefore, BYU controlled pace and tempo, not only on that side of the ball, but the frustration also manifested itself um, on the other side. With the quarterback that struggled mildly going into uh, the third game against USC, Zach Wilson, he found his stride. He all of a sudden identified a new dimension to his game. I think I read somewhere where they're starting to call him, quote unquote, the Mormon Manziel, because he kind of looked like Johnny Manziel the way that he was having success against USC uh, defensive front. But I, I look at that situation where USC became very predictable defensively, staying in, in man coverage the majority of the game, making themselves very predictable on how to run guys out of the box so that it favored what BYU ultimately wanted to do with some of their delayed runs and, uh, and their, their um, quick, efficient passes. Where I thought USC could have helped themselves was change up the tempo, maybe hit, hit uh, Wilson with some zone dog blitzes so that it forced him to maybe see half the field as opposed to being comfortable in the middle of the field and dictating. I thought the corners played well, but it's the interior part of the defense that suffered in this game with misdirection and poor tackling. But how many times are we going to have to say misdirection and poor tackling uh, is impacting this team's ability to be as successful as it can be? If, if, I, if we have to say this week in and week out and they're not making the corrections, then that becomes uh, a systemic issue that is going to plague this team and can potentially cost them an opportunity to win the Pac-12 South. How much trouble is this defense in? Because you've got a, a Utah offense coming in with a mobile quarterback and the ability to, to do a ton of stuff in terms of you know, misdirection and, and formation and that sort of, sort of stuff on offense. Washington doesn't have uh, the, the mobile quarterback, but then Notre Dame has Ian Book, uh, another guy, uh, who can get things done on the ground. Is, is there a fix for the defense? Is, is there something that, you know, you would do as kind of a, a defensive mind and also that USC could do with the personnel uh, that, that they have on the roster right now? This defense is, is more athletic than it has been in the last four to five years, okay? But at times, 
they find themselves over pursuing and out of position. And the coaching staff tends to treat this team like it's a pro veteran team. They're not the Los Angeles Rams. Okay. You can't afford to take the preseason off and then wrap things up on game day. This is still a very physical game and you have to tackle in practice. You have to get your fits to simulate what you're going to experience in the game. Now there's a way to thud without going down on the ground and injuring players, but you have to get that practice in. And if USC has elected not to um, uh, have full contact practices, then they're putting themselves at a disadvantage. So what can you do? You can simulate those situations back in practice and get back to fits, maybe change up a couple of the drills um, at the beginning of practice so you can simulate being hitting with the right shoulder and, and making sure that everyone is um, in proper alignment. But defensively, I think that you have to be able to be um, flexible enough to go from an overfront to an underfront, being able to put the safety in the box versus keeping the strong safety out the box, um, getting the edge rushers on the line of scrimmage versus uh, backing them off at times. I, I think that when you become so predictable, it makes it easy for the run fits. That's why we're seeing teams line up in these bunch formations and they're running multiple series in these bunch formations because, because it throws off your run fits and it forces every, everyone on the defense to now have to adjust one hole over. And not everyone is comfortable doing that when portions of the secondary don't participate in nine on seven drills, nine defensive players, uh, I mean, um, against, against um, run fits. Because we don't see that, um, I think that's where we're finding the issues. The issues are guys are like surprised in the game, like as though they've never seen this or they've never been coached up against that. Lastly, Eric, if you are going to make some changes, I think it has to be with the, um, the chemistry. Yeah, there, there's rotational guys that, that seem to play well together, but open competition back up. And if someone is outperforming another, you know, open that competition up so that you get the best 11, the smartest 11, who aren't making the same unforced errors week in and week out. And I'm speaking defensively. If, if it's truly about that competition, get your best 11 on the field, because there are times where I'm not certain that the defense trusts that it is playing with the best 11. Where, where is this program right now for, for you? Because when you hear Clay Helton in the Sunday media call talk about, you know, we were one turnover away or, you know, that BYU made one more play than us, it feels like, okay, so so you're at a level as a program where you're sort of teetering on either side of a win or a loss against BYU. That, that doesn't feel like a place where you want to be um, at this point. And, and I understand, look, if you're playing a true freshman at quarterback last year and all of a sudden you're dealt a hand where you've got to play another true freshman at quarterback the next year, that doesn't happen. I mean, that, that's not a situation that most coaches find themselves in, especially in an offense where um, it, it requires so much of the quarterback. I, I know Clay Helton says, you know, Keaton Slovis doesn't have to be Superman. Other guys do. But 
look, he, th- there's a lot of responsibility on the quarterback in this. Right. You're talking about if you, you know, skip a read or lock in on a guy that results in an interception, that, that's a huge uh, weight that, that's on yeah. the quarterback. And I don't think any quarterback, you know, that has ever played doesn't want that. I mean, that, that's why you want to play the position because you want to have that responsibility. You want to make uh, those decisions and kind of have the team on your back. But saying that, even with a true freshman, and we, you know, we could get into, you know, for hours, the decision to put yourself in a situation where your true freshman is your backup quarterback. But it, it does feel like this team is sort of starting over almost every year where it's like, okay, we'll start from zero and we'll build up throughout the season. And you all, you know, may, maybe you don't hear it as much kind of on a national scale. The, there was a, a stretch of, you know, five to six years where you just heard it constantly. The idea of, you know, we don't rebuild, we reload. It feels like USC is almost rebuilding game to game at this point, where, where you, <laughs> you just know. like yeah. don't, you don't know what's coming out of the tunnel to right. start any game. Um, and, and this has been the case for for the past, I don't know, dozen, 15, 16 games. That, yeah, that's and, and, and it truly isn't fair for me to go back to my experience. But to draw comparisons of graduate of coming into USC in 1999 under Paul Hackett and spending the first two years when Pete Carroll was implementing his system and belief and philosophy and that philosophy resonated from the top down, doing things a little differently, introducing before the game the Trojan walk, rehearsing every step of the way so when when game time came and and the bright lights in the confines of the coliseum are on the road there was no doubt expectation about how to go about your business and how to play trojan football and because he was able to implement that and he got buy-in from the players it created a legacy that lasted for a decade long and ultimately led to a couple of national championships and guys were rewarded with Heisman trophies, so forth and so on. Under Clay Helton, it feels like 51st dates. You talked about him resetting week in and week out, uh, to quote the movie from our, the, the title of the movie uh, from Adam Sandler. It just feels like this team doesn't have an identity because it because there is no stability at the top. You're, you know, since Clay Helton's been there, he's now going through his second, if not his third, athletic director. Um, so he there is very little support at the top. Who is his trusting board? You know, he brought in a, 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 a new coaches, implementing new philosophies that isn't his. So when things aren't going well, what is his barometer? meaning Clay Helton's barometer to say, hey, man, we're getting off scale. Um, let's get this thing back on track. Let's kind of, you know, get to the middle of the fairway again. I don't know if he has that. So right now, the, the program is going as he is going. And that is very reactionary. The emotions that he's going through are creating um, um, just really instability from the top down. The biggest indictment on this program as it stands now is a false sense of positivity. This was a great opportunity in a coaching moment to not, you know, just kind of bury guys, because that's not what I'm suggesting, but it's to remind guys that this game is all about the attention to details. 
And if we're not getting that in practice, the results will show up in the game. Let's get back to the fundamentals and the basics, and let's get back to playing football the way that we know how. We let this game escape from us. Let's not allow that to happen again. I don't know if that message is really being conveyed. Instead, it does. we do get the sense that the message delivered from Clay Helton on, on Sunday night um, press conferences is the same message that we're hearing from the players. It's a false sense of, of security. I don't want this team to feel secure. I want this team to play with an urgency, knowing that, that you know, if they focus in practice and the results show in the game, that this program will get better week in and week out. Right now, it just feels like they're holding on to survive week in and week out, and they're very sensitive to the criticism outside. What's your experience from playing where you have have a coach who, when he's addressing the media, you know, we're going to keep moving and, and we're going to get better. And this is something we're going to put behind us. I mean, co you know, th there's a reason they call it coach speak. And you hear that from every coach, you know, Nick Saban is constantly mad when his team is, is blowing guys out, you know, blowing other teams out by 55, 60 points. I, I can't imagine that he truly feels upset about some of those games. I, I think some of it is show. I think all coaches sort of have that, that they want to put stuff out in the media. But like you said, you're, you're hearing a lot of the same talking points from the players coming out, which makes you feel like this is what's being addressed. But in your sense, how much of a, a different tone or message could be sort of being sent privately away from the media? It's interesting because, again, and I can only go back to my time at USC to, to best illustrate this. All right. On our coaching staff, we had the likes of an Ed Ogeron. We, we had the likes of a Greg Burns, but we also had a Nick Holt. Two of those three names that I just mentioned on the defensive staff, at one point or another, became head coaches. So when you have multiple coaches who have aspirations of becoming head coaches, they take ownership and pride of their unit. And there was inner competition to be the best unit. And there was an accountability that, yeah, you're always going to get coach talk because you don't want things to leak. But actions always speak louder than words. And when you go to practice, you knew that that week was going to be a more difficult and a more challenging practice because the tempo and the competition was going to be elevated because you gave up something that, that you shouldn't have given up. You, gave, you, you let a game escape victory. As a result of that, there was a pride that, that players often took, but that message was delivered in the meeting rooms from you know, coaches chirping at you a little bit more in the film room because perhaps somebody's falling asleep. I'm not implying that any of that is happening, but I do know that there doesn't seem to be any change uh, from the end of the game to the post-conference meetings or um, interviews to what we sense is happening on the field in practice. You don't hear that. And because of that, there is no consequence for doing something wrong. There is no consequence for letting the game escape when you should have clearly defeated an opponent that was more inferior to your talent. But it, so that is a philosophy and a mindset that can only change when guys buy in and they create the accountability. But you're asking guys to buy in and create accountability 
who don't understand how to do it. So that message, if it isn't coming from your head coach, it will never come because assistant coaches will not um, step over that line of subordination where they're, they're um, undermining the coach's message. And if the coach's message is to be positive no matter what, then he set this team up for failure and it will never be better than mediocre because that's where this program is at the moment. It is a mediocre program that, that is inconsistent. Sometimes it plays up to the level of competition. More times than not, it lets you down. That's why it doesn't cover the spread. And that's why, quite frankly, many people are questioning, is Clay Helton the long-term solution? After 10 years of a body of work, he is the solution right now, but I don't know how far this team is going to go. If it doesn't come to play on, on Saturday, this program will start to spiral down very, very quickly because the players right now remember what happened last year. They were optimistic going into this year, but if they don't sense that they are prepared to endure um, a team like Utah, they will quit on you. And, and I hate to say that about Trojans, but they're not going to fight for somebody that they don't believe is leading them in the right direction. Right now, this program is just drifting in the middle of the ocean. And because of the strength of the players, they overcome some of their own inept. Okay. Um, I, I'm curious what, what you see. Again, Friday night, Utah comes in. And this is a short week for USC. They're going to have to put you know, the, the BYU game behind them quickly because Utah is certainly not going to come in and show any mercy. This is a chance where Utah really has an opportunity to absolutely grab the Pac-12 South. You, you've seen, you know, maybe some signs of life from Arizona State uh, so far this season. But if Utah sort of puts it on USC, they absolutely have to be seen as, you know, maybe the front runner for the entire Pac-12 conference. Do you get a sense that, and not asking you kind of a, you know, for a prediction or anything on the game, but do you get a sense that, that USC comes out and, and kind of does something against Utah? Can they, can they rebound? Have they shown enough you know, kind of, kind of signs of life throughout the first three games to, to make you think that this will be, you know, anything more than kind of what last last year's Utah-USC right. game was. Well, we know one thing about a Kyle Willingham coach team, that they truly understand their identity and they play up to that identity. They're a very physical team. They're going to punish you um, with their interior front four defensively. Offensively, they're going to kind of control pace and tempo of the game. So they know what their strengths are. They know what their weaknesses are. But what is the one area of blemish on um, on Utah's pretty much their their career and record in the Pac-12 South, they've yet to overcome the 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 echoes of the Coliseum for one reason or another. They struggle in the Coliseum to put a game away. Okay, and USC has had their fair share of success playing in the Coliseum against Utah. So that is one thing going well for them. So that first half is going to be crucial. When USC tries to put BYU behind them and focus on this game, if they punch Utah in the mouth, they're going to find themselves in a great battle that's going to come down to situational football. Now it's going to come down to execution. What happens during the game? Can you make the necessary adjustments? Because make no mistake about it, behind Zach Moss and perhaps Tyler Huntley, this is a team that is 
uh, Utah offensively that believe that that they can compete and contend, and that that if the game is close in the second half, that USC will make enough mistakes for them to overcome um, the 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 difference in the athleticism from USC skill players and theirs. Where I think, Eric, where I think that that is really going to boil down to is, can USC pull out a close game? Can they execute when they need to execute? And can they run the ball on their own terms? Or will they be forced into uh, situations that makes them uncomfortable because they're going away from, um, from what they really want to do, which is pass the ball? Yeah, we'll, we'll see how things play out Friday. I, I think what's interesting about this season is if you had sort of before the season said they're 2-1 and one going into to Utah, obviously, again, the change of quarterback play, plays a huge role in, in preseason perceptions with, you know, now kind of current projections. But, you know, if, if you had said 2-1 and one with an overtime loss, it's sort of like, okay, that's maybe what we predicted. I, I think – and again, we can get into, you know, t- down the road. what. But, but Eric, Eric, uh, I'm going to stop you yeah. right there. Okay, but the optics of a two and one. If, sure. If before the season, you said after three games, you're two and one. And you said, and, and that one came in an overtime loss. Likely you would have thought, okay, maybe Stanford. You know, before we realize what Stanford is becoming now, which is a shell of itself, you would have said, okay, I'll, I'll take that. But it's the optics of who you're, win- who you're beating and how you're losing games. That always tells a story. And, and right now, from three weeks, each story tells a different message. And we don't know what this team is. That is the biggest problem that I have. And I'm sure that many SC fans are trying to wrap their hands around. Who are they? You know, is this a physical team? Or is this just a team, like I said, that's, you know, a reactionary team that takes advantage of, of uh, inferior talent at times? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's what it is. I think, you know, as you go forward, that Stanford game becomes more and more interesting of what did we actually see? And, you know, it, it's it's tough to pack up and, and to go to BYU, play a game on the road. Again, you're taking your true freshman for the first time on the road against a team that it seemed like had that defensive line that that could beat you I mean that that if that's going to be sort of USC's Achilles heel I mean you know if if you let a a nose tackle get into your backfield as often as they did uh allow BYU to that that's going to be tough for any team but but I think that's sort of again if we're putting together data points to figure out what this team is these are these are kind of changing week to week now you know what what you expected and I think that goes into really a lot of what we're talking about where we're relying on kind of every Saturday to tell us a new story about what this team is and what it does well and, and what they want to do. And I, I it, it, like you talked about maybe something along the lines of like a, a rudderless program where you don't know, this is what we do well and we can do it against anybody. Yeah, I mean, anybody. Oklahoma yes. runs their offense out there it almost doesn't matter what what an opposing defense does. We're going to do this and we can take advantage of absolutely everything that you throw out. And right now you're just not talking about, you know, when you're talking about USC, it's we're a play away from BYU. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we can get Utah at home. Maybe we can go up and and beat Washington. You're not talking about them. How do they look, you know, 
compared to Clemson? How do they look compared to Alabama? It's just, it's just not there right now. And I think, again, that goes back to the idea of th this is another, you know, last year was clearly sort of rebuilding and trying to figure out where you were. Again, this is sort of another rebuilding year. And, and USC fans are just not used to seeing you, that you sort be, of in yeah. back to back years. Eric, Eric, you can't be rebuilding on both sides of the ball. Like you sure. said, you you have to understand what your identity is and then kind of minimize the area which is a, a growth or a learning curve. Okay. So for me, going into this game against Utah, the three takeaways that I'd like to see USC master and overcome is is <clears throat> offensively show multiple fronts, multiple packages. If you're going to limit your plays, then be multiple in how you get into those plays so that you don't become so predictable. Two is um, allow for a Slovis to continue to move and manipulate his windows within the pocket. Give him the freedom and flexibility of also adjusting out of a play. So in other words, if you're going to give him a play, also give him a run play that he can audible into instead of forcing him to identify the, the proper read, okay? Lastly, what I'd like to see from this team in situational football is in and out of timeouts, resetting what the expectation is for that particular drive. Not all drives are made equal to score. Some drives are to flip the field. Other drives are to position yourself for a great Chase McGrath field goal. And in some situations, you know you have to bleed the clock. Show me some of that, that you can control that at home. Okay, defensively, I'd like to see USC set the edges and take pride in forcing the plays to remain in between tackles instead of allowing them to come up the field and escape. I also like to see more consistency from the nickel and safety positions. Be more consistent and be accountable to the team. I think the corners are holding up. I have no problems with their, uh, the, the, the way that they're playing at this juncture. But I'd like to see 11 guys swarming to the ball and understanding sound gap and, uh, and playing with integrity. I don't see that yet. And that is an indictment on a, on, um, an, a defensive coordinator who isn't going through the same changes that the offense is going through. It is the same philosophy but he needs to now add layers to that philosophy to give it more texture. It is very easy to, uh, to hit them with run fits. Give it more texture by going from a, a four, three back down to a three, four, three down linemen or four down linemen with three to four linebackers. Believe that you have the athletes to make the plays, but now put them in a position where their backs are not turned to the football on every down meaning get yourself out of man coverage and play some zone concepts that allows for everyone to see the field the same way. Yeah, I, I think this Utah uh, game is going to tell us a, a ton about where this USC team and program are right now and then also what to expect uh, moving forward the rest of the season because, again, it's, it's Utah-Washington at Notre Dame. You, you don't get Utah and then kind of a breath. So th this is going to be – an absolutely telling stretch. And this is what we knew coming into the season. We talked about those first six games. Where does USC stand after those first six games? And of those six, this Friday night against Utah, maybe, maybe the most important in that stretch in terms of giving us 
a sense of where USC is. So we'll, we'll be back next week to break down uh, w- whatever happens with Utah's trip to the Coliseum. So for Daryl Rideau, this is Eric McKinney. Thanks for listening to the We Are SC podcast, Monday morning cornerback.